What, what are you worth? As I see the pain and the suffering around the world, what are people worth and what are you worth? I want to look briefly at a portion of scripture this morning that is very, very familiar to us, but it becomes so familiar that we forget the impact and the intimacy through that passage that God wants to have with us and to encourage us when we're on difficult life's pathways. Because although there is a war in Ukraine, which is the worst thing that's happened in Europe since the Second World War, very often things are closer to home in our own hearts. And there are conflicts going on in our own hearts or in our own families or maybe in our workplace that we can't seem to resolve. And we just kind of have to put up with it and live with it. So what are you worth? Well, what am I worth, first of all? So if you've got a moment, I, I, I was... Um, trying to tidy my little office the other day, and uh, I came across some paperwork that goes back to 1967. Uh, I, I didn't write this. I was born in 1967. Um, but what this is, is it's actually a legal document of transfer of ownership. You're probably wondering what was transferred. Well, it wasn't a house, and it wasn't a cat or a dog or a car. It was me. Because uh, when I was born, my, my real parents couldn't keep me for, for difficult reasons. And uh, I found the legal papers that the solicitors had billed my parents with. And uh, so what am I worth? Uh, well, I'm actually worth about $46 in old New Zealand money. So I'm, I'm worth the price of a toaster. That's what I'm worth. Or a really cheap vacuum cleaner from Argos. Um, all by today's money, £453. So uh, I, I'm worth the same amount as a washing machine by today's money, according to this legal document. And uh, I didn't have a birth certificate. I just had like a little receipt. And, you know, I was thinking maybe my parents were given that. So if something went wrong, they could take me back and exchange me for something better. You know, like you get a receipt at the shops. So I was looking, and I thought, that's just really, really bizarre. So I'm worth £453 by today's money. But no, the measure of my worth and your worth, and indeed the people's worth in the world, is far greater than £453. You're worth more than a washing machine, uh, even a cheap washing machine. So what are we worth? But that's, that's what I cost to keep and to be taken out of one family and legally put into another family, which for me was excellent because I was adopted by Christian missionaries. Woo -woo. I mean, what are the chances of that? Just absolutely fabulous. You can't grow up in that kind of environment and resist God. I tell you, it was just like... Anyway, so that's what I cost to be put into one family. But what about you and I? What was the cost, the value of your life to be put into God's family? Because Jesus, when he speaks in the gospel, says this, I will never leave you as orphans. I will never forsake you. In other words, I will never turn my back on you. So already Jesus's earthly ministry suggests to us that we are of great value to him, more value than you put on yourself at times. So what is that value? I think we might have to put another 50p in the meter here. There we go. What are you worth to God? Well, this is what you're worth to God. A pretty gruesome picture, isn't it? But sometimes we forget the significance of Jesus on the cross actually demonstrates the worth of humanity. And it was a really vile act. Sometimes we dress it up a little bit. But there was a historian and a lawyer and a politician in the first century who lived in the first century called Cicero. 
I like reading his works because I'm a little bit odd like that. But he said this, uh, nobody should speak about the cross because it is so vile and so barbaric. Let the very word cross be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes and their ears. So a Roman lawyer in the first century looked at the cross and he thought that is so dreadful, we shouldn't even think about it or speak of it. How much of the cross and the death of Jesus have we kind of dressed up and we've forgotten the horror and the vileness of it because God wanted a living, proving relationship with each one of us? Well, let's have a little look at that. Um, Jesus said in the Gospels, I am the good shepherd. So when he said, I am the good shepherd, what exactly does that mean? When Jesus said that, there you go, there's a nice little cute picture well, to answer that, we're going to have to look at a psalm that is, is very well known. But before we look at the 23rd psalm very briefly together, I want to tell you a story. Is that all right? I, I live in the Cotswolds and I often take my dog across the fields. Uh, I was up the hills yesterday, take my little whippity dog out with my wife. There she is there. And uh, I think it was late last year. We were walking across one of these fields, having a chat. The dog was on the lead because the, the, the field was full of sheep, all barring away. And I was suddenly had that thought, you know, I'm talking to myself here. And maybe some of you who've been married a little while, you kind of feel that as well. But I looked around, my wife had gone. And I thought, maybe she's been raptured. And I've been left here. And I was shouting for her. There was no sign of her anyway. It's just me and the dog and all these sheep. And then from the distance, from the other side of the field, I heard this voice. So I, I walked over to the end of the field and in the river is my wife supporting a big fat sheep. And she's in the river up to her armpits because it was flooded, hanging on to this sheep. And she said, get in here and help me. So do you know what I did? No, I said, no. <laughs> I, I said, I'm, a, I'm not a shepherd, I'm a sailor by trade. So she said, well, make yourself useful, go and find the farmer. So I went and found the farmer. He came over, looked at my wife and said, why aren't you in there? And I said, oh, yes, okay, anyway. Anyway, here's this thing. My wife was a shepherdess before she married me on a farm in Cornwall with her parents. And out of all those bleating sheep, and it was a noise, she heard one that was in distress because she's a shepherdess. And she knew exactly where to go and find it. And she got involved in the struggle of that sheep. It was exhausted. It was frightened. It was tired. It was drowning. You can see the state it was in, in there. I wasn't allowed to take a picture of Iris because uh, she was in a bit of a more of a state by the time the farmer came. But, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm not a shepherd, so I didn't notice the voice of the one that was in distress. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... And I'll repeat that, the good shepherd, because he's a shepherd, he hears his sheep. But out of the crowds, he hears the one that's in distress. And Jesus doesn't just turn his back like I would do and say to the sheep, mint sauce and roast potatoes, it's your own fault, you shouldn't have drifted away. He gets involved and he surrounds that lost sheep and draws them so they don't sink. And he comforts them in their distress. He gets involved. I don't because I'm not a shepherd. I'm not afraid of water because I used to be a sailor. But there's no way I'm rescuing a dumb sheep like this. What are you worth? 
Jesus died for you on the cross, a punishment so brutal, it was forbidden in some circles to even talk about it. And he supports you in your distress. And sometimes when we cry out to him, whether it's through physical illnesses that we're going through, or just the pain and the distress and the pressure of family life or work, or just getting out of bed in the morning, guess what? He hears your voice. How does he do that? I don't know. How did my wife hear that distressed sheep out of the hundreds that were there? I don't know. But he does. And that's why he's able to say that I am the good shepherd. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the good shepherd? Well, am I going backwards or forwards? I think I'm going backwards, aren't I? That, that's typical me. I'm always going backwards. There we go. To say that the Lord is my shepherd is to declare that Jesus is your shepherd in all seasons. Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores uh, and he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guards me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, you know the rest because it's very familiar. I was a pastor for many years, but recently I've, I've kind of woken up and thought, this is a psalm for the living, not for the dead. I'm a little bit slow like that, so you'll have to forgive me. So God is faithful in all the seasons of life. And I don't know what season that you're facing right now, whether there's a sense of autumn in your heart or winter or springtime or, you know, I, I like the summer. I like <coughs> hot weather, but my life isn't always like that and neither is yours. So come to this shepherd today. I would encourage you to. Can you actually say, like David said, the Lord is my shepherd? Even when things are going wrong, to say, Lord, you're still my shepherd and you won't leave me or forsake me. The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. King David wrote this and he's probably reflecting back to the day before he was a king and he was a humble shepherd. But now that he's king, he's got wealth, he's got advisors, he's probably got a Porsche 911 or a chariot equivalent. He's got everything that the kingdom has to offer, sort of financially and materially. But that's not important. The thing that is important is the fact that if my relationship with Jesus is right, then there's nothing else in this world that's going to satisfy me. It's interesting. I was listening to uh, somebody on the TV the other day about fame and wealth. And, and they said, you know, when we got to the top of fame, do you know what we saw? Nothing. You know, when I climb the mountains with the Lord, what do I see? More than enough. And I want to encourage you, whatever season you're in life, can you say that in him, I have all that I need. Come to the shepherd's peace today, because as we come afresh to him, that is when we find peace. But the psalmist goes on and he says this, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, I'm not a shepherd, I'm not a sheep expert, but what I have noticed when I take my little whippity greyhound dog across the fields on the lead when there are sheep there, is that when the sheep see the dog, they struggle to get up and run away. They're never going to be an Olympic race. My dog can run about 45 kilometers per hour. He's just like lightning. But a sheep, it takes them half an hour just to get up and, and run away. What I'm trying to say is this, that a sheep will only lie down when it feels safe. So when the psalmist says, he makes me lie down, because of his strong relationship with the Lord, 
he knows he can find that place of rest and sustenance. I remember in one of the stand countries once uh, teaching out there and showing the students where I lived in rural Gloucestershire. And they looked at it and said, wow, that grass is really green. I wish we lived there. I said, well, where I live, we get flooded a lot. And that's why the grass is green. Oh, perhaps that's not a good idea. But here's the sense of healthy, sustaining nourishment that we can sit down and relax in because we know we are in his presence. Can you say that this morning, that you feel that sense of safety and peace in your life rather than running around like a headless chicken? Although you probably shouldn't say things like that because it's offensive to chickens these days with the way things are going. But there's this whole sense of, can you say the Lord is your shepherd? Because until you say that, you can't come to those green pastures. And I would encourage you, come to the shepherd afresh. Come to those green pastures. Lie down and rest. He goes on and he says this. He leads me beside still waters. Not a raging waterfall. Not stagnant waters. Not a river that is just whooshing past. The rivers that we have in Tewkesbury, we have the Avon on the Severn. And during the summertime, they look really placid and nice. During the wintertime, they're very dangerous. They can turn very, very quickly. But this is not a dangerous river. These are still waters. Let me explain it by telling you a story. I remember when I was young, my father took me up one of the mountains in Wales called Cader Idris. It's a really good mountain. And on the way down, I was doing nothing but grumbling, saying, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I can't go on any further. I'm never going to make it back to the campsite. I was 21 at the time. Uh, <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was a little bit younger than that. And I was just, I was exhausted. I just couldn't do it. My feet were hurting. And I remember my dad just sitting me on the side of the, the river, taking my shoes off and my socks off and hanging onto my wrists and holding me over the river. And I was, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't grumble again. But he just was dipping me in the river up to my knees. And you know what? I thought, whoa, that is so good. And as he sat me back on the riverbank, I can remember saying to him, Daddy, Daddy, I can carry on the journey now. I feel so much better. You see, when we sit by the still waters, we're refreshed. And we feel that we're able to stand up again and finish the pilgrimage of life and get to our destination rejoicing, not exhausted and clapped apart. Sometimes it's hard to pray for people in Ukraine. Pray that God will lead them by those still waters, that they would find refreshment in these days, that God would just bathe them afresh with refreshment. He leads me by still waters. Come to those still waters today. He restores my soul. How very often sometimes our thoughts, our speech, our behaviour just goes in the opposite direction to where God wants us to be. Or, you know, we just let God down so very, very often. But isn't it good? He's so gracious that he restores that relationship back to him. And it's important that we remember that he does that. He leads, he guides and he restores. Sometimes our hearts get cold and we, we, we don't see how cold they're getting because it's just... Like a cold cup of tea, you go back to it 10 minutes later and you think, oh, that's really cold and tepid, it's awful. And it's because you've left it too long. And sometimes our hearts are like that. We, we drift slowly away from the Lord and we suddenly wake up and think, oh, goodness me, my heart 
and my desire for God is so tepid and cold. And God says, just come back to me. Maybe that's where you're at today. Come to his restoration day. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. And again, righteousness. When was the last time you either thought about that word, spoke about that word, or really took that word into your heart? Righteousness. You know, I've never heard anybody go into one of the supermarkets and look at the price of tomatoes and say, what an unrighteous price the tomatoes are. Righteousness. What exactly does that mean? We just, we don't have that in our culture anymore. It means the right way of doing things. And notice who leads us, who guides us in the right way of doing things. Can you see how this is a psalm for life? Maybe you've got some difficult decisions to make this week with your home or your work or your own personal life. Well, you don't have to be alone in that because it's in the nature and the character of God to lead you in that right path. The right way of doing things. And when you pray for people overseas, Lord, guide them in those paths of righteousness. The temptation to deal with your enemy in an unrighteous way must be so strong in some of these places. But Lord, would you lead them in those paths? Come to the right path today. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. For the believer, death is a shadow. And maybe some of you have already faced or come close to the shadow of death whether it's through illness or accident or harm. What I've realized over the years is death is simply a shadow. How can I explain this? Well, first of all, confession time. I need to confess to you that I like watching Tom and Jerry. Don't tell you that. They say Tom and Jerry is too violent these days for children to see, so it's not on the telly as much as it used to be. I think, right, okay. Anyway, I like watching Tom and Jerry. And I like it when the cat is chasing the mouse and then all of a sudden the cat stops because on the wall there's a giant shadow, a humongous monster with these sharp teeth. And the, the, the hair on the back of Tom, the cat, all goes up and he thinks, I've had it. And he runs away. And then it's like the camera just pans round and you see a tiny little mouse stood in front of a tiny little candle holding cut out tiny little teeth creating this huge shadow on the wall. What is a shadow? A shadow is just something that has got in the way of the light, temporarily. It has no power, but it can be scary. I remember as a child having National Geographic magazine sent to me by my gram. And one of them one day was this picture of a great white shark's face. And it was like two meters by a meter. It was huge. It took up a whole wall in my bedroom. At night time, the cars would go past and the, the car light would just shine on it every so often. And you'll see these teeth. And I was so scared, I ripped it up. But what was it? It was just a, a shadow. And the psalmist says, when the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death, as we go in and out of it, it is just a shadow, like the shadow of cardboard cut up teeth. is just something that gets in the way of the light. So we should not fear this life or passing into the next. This psalm is just so, so practical. And why? Because he says, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 139 <clears throat> says, where can I go from your spirit? There is nowhere I can go in this earth, whether it's out at sea or anywhere, where you will not be with me. 
And we need to remember that. And it's good to pray that as well, the presence of God. Maybe you felt that sometimes when you're going through a difficult situation and you're just aware that people are praying for you. Why? Because God has promised he will always be with you. Come through those shadows today. Thomas goes on and he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I remember reading this as a child thinking, your rod and your staff, they come for me. And that, that was pretty scary. But what is the rod and the staff? Well, they are symbols of correction and protection. Why? Because the staff to drive away wild dogs and wolves and the shepherd's crook to, to, to pull the sheep back to himself when they're wandering. But also the staff would be used as the sheep are coming down from the mountain and into the pen to separate the sheep and count them one by one just to make sure none are missing. And the psalmist recalls on this and it's got this whole image of God is always looking out for you to make sure you're not missing. Come to these symbols of correction and protection. Come to his protection today. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, if you come to Tewkesbury where I live, this is my dining room. And uh, you're more... It's, it's funny how you, you, you recognise the reality of actually, no, this is definitely not my dining room. We can't begin to imagine what it was like to sit at a table with the Queen. It must have been amazing because you see all the hard work with the butlers and the the people with their little rulers making sure the plates are lined up and the serviettes are lined up and the cutlery and everything else and more cutlery than I've got in my drawer at home just for one person. You know, it's just a humongous thing that they put on. And yet one day you and I will sit at a table. We have a foretaste of it when we sit at the Lord's table. And that table will be so magnificent, it will blow our minds. If and let me just explain how, how amazing God is. If we were to get in a jumbo jet and fly around the world just once, and somebody's done it, I don't know why they've done it, but they've done it non-stop. It will take 54 hours, non-stop. There's a star in our universe called Canis Majoris. And if it were possible for us to get in a plane and fly around it just once, it would take 1,100 years. It is so big. And sometimes we forget how big our God is, how majestic he is. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Just come back to the Lord and reflect on how magnificent, how majestic, and how he wants to share everything that he is, both now and in the future with you and me. I mean, I look in the mirror and I think, God, why on earth would you want to do that with me? It's because I love you. And I'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to his table today. You anoint my head with oil. The shepherd separates sheep that are his so he knows who they are and he anoints them for service. Come for this act of preparation today. I'm going to leave you on this thought. My cup runs over. Some people have suggested it's just, you know, my cup isn't half empty. It's not half full. It's, it's just full. Well, it's far more than that. This is based on a very ancient Jewish hospitality custom. What's your name, sir? Dave. Okay, imagine Dave is in the desert. He's, he's got no food left, no drink. His, his clothes are all ripped and torn. And he's, he's just struggling to get through the desert. And in the distance, he sees a tent. And it's not a mirage, because I'm not mirage. And he, he thinks, 
That's Wayne's tent. If I can just get there, I know I'll get help. So he comes to the tent and I welcome him in. I put him on a nice soft cushion on, on the carpet and I put a cup in his hand. I said, just hold that a minute, Dave. And then I get a flask or a, a skin of oil or precious perfume or really expensive wine. And I just pour that into the cup and it all flows over. And Dave says, stop, stop, stop. It's all going over me now. And I say, yes, that's what it's meant to do. Because it symbolizes that while you remain in my presence, I will bless you far more than you could have imagined. You came into my presence just for help, but I, I want you in my presence because I just want to pour myself onto you far more than you expected. And then when you go on to your journey, people will go up to you and go, hey, you smell a bit different, Dave. And he said, well, I've been in Wayne's tent and my cup overflowed. You see, we are the fragrant aroma of a sinful world. Or if we come into the presence of Christ, we are the fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ. What is the smell? And it shouldn't be just links. What is the smell that people smell around you? Is it the state of a sinful, corrupt world? Or can they tell that you have spent time in the presence of God and your cup overflows? And as your cup overflows, it, you don't just have more than enough for yourself, but you've got more than enough to share with others. Isn't the 23rd Psalm wonderful? Come to that cup. Come to the shepherd. Why? Because he hears your voice. Thank you for allowing me to come and share with you today.